0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resimczynski and I, Niels Kastroblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Mark, wonderful to be back with you this week. How are things? How are you doing? Uh, very good. It's the beginning of summer.
1: This is officially the first uh, weekend of summer, albeit in the U.S. usually start on Memorial Day and go to Labor Day, but from an from a astrological basis, this is the first weekend of summer.
0: I have to say, you know, here in Switzerland, it's been feeling like summer for a while. It's been very warm and humid, So, uh, but I'm sure that's been the same on your side. Now, Mark, we're going to have some, uh, we have a great number of topics that we're going to talk about uh, as usual, a long list that we need to tackle. Uh, But before we do that, um, I'm always curious what's been on your radar since uh, we last spoke a few weeks ago.
1: Well, the main thing we're going to talk about is, uh, and well, in the main topic, is I could, st- I, I could go on and on. Is just what has been happening in the first half of the year, or what hasn't happened, or what we expected to happen that didn't happen, and and that's probably what's on my mind right now. Is is that all of the crisis issues
0: that I thought were going to be important at the beginning of the year haven't turned out that way. Fair enough. That's a good uh, little teaser to what we're going to talk about. Uh, In terms of, I'm not sure whether this is something we expected to happen or not, but I will just say that as I was preparing uh, our topics today, this morning on Saturday morning, uh, there are, of course, many, many breaking news uh, everywhere about a possible coup d'etat in Russia. Uh, Who knows uh, what the real uh, situation is, but, of course, if that is the case, then there will be some interesting market action, no doubt, uh, Monday morning. Now, despite it being a relatively quiet week in terms of news, uh, that is until this morning, of course, uh, it was a week of corrections uh, in many of the trends that we've been uh, enjoying uh, in the last uh, couple of months. In particular, we saw this week equity markets uh, taking a breather, and that led to some give back in some of the open profits for trend-following strategies. Another market that kind of saw the same pattern uh, this week was sugar, uh, that also saw a little bit of a, a price cut, so to speak, uh, against its long-term uptrend. And elsewhere, I think it was pretty mixed, uh, the way I see it at least. you know, Even within the same sector, uh, in some cases, for example, in metals, um, I think you've had markets like uh, aluminum, nickel, zinc doing probably r- relatively well. And then all the other metals, probably not so well this week. And the same you could be said about fixed income. Uh, where I think some markets like uh, the short Sonya, what used to be the short Sterling in the UK, had a pretty good week uh, for those who still have short exposure. But then other markets saw small losses as they were moving higher this week. So perhaps the only sector overall that was pretty congruent and still kind of doing what it's supposed to do from a trend following point of view, and that's energy. Uh, where we did see some lower prices, which I think benefited trend followers. Even though, overall, it was a down week, I'm pretty sure of that, when everything is counted as a Friday night. In terms of my own trend barometer, still stuck in neutral. In fact, right now, it's stuck completely in neutral at the level of 45. Um, So if people go to the website and they see the chart of the last 12 months, the trend barometer has really not and um, shown lots of uh, willingness either uh, up or down, which kind of completely matches what's happened performance-wise so far this year because when I look at that right now, I see that the BTOP50 index, yeah, it's making 65 basis points as of Thursday. Friday was probably a down day and it's down about 1% for the year, so really going nowhere. Same with the CTA index, up 60 basis points so far uh, in June, uh, down 70 basis points for the month. Uh, sorry for the year. Uh, The trend index also up about 65, 64 basis points, down one and a quarter for the year. And then maybe, um, again, a little bit to my surprise, perhaps the short-term traders index not really making much of this more, uh, how should I say, tr- range trading environment. Uh, it's flat for the month of June, and it's still down more than three percent so far in 2023. Equities, on the other hand, still doing well in June, up 3.6 percent for the MSCI World, up 11 and a half for the year, and the world government bonds down about 10 basis points so far in June, while the S&P 500 is up about 4 percent in June, up 13 and a quarter for the year. Of course, as we all know driven by only a few big tech stocks. Okay, now before we dive into the topics that you brought along, you and I exchanged uh, a little article that came up uh, during this week. Um, Mainly, I I guess I caught it by by looking at the title. It was uh, on LinkedIn that I saw it. It was written by a guy called Sam van de Schotbrugge, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, who's linked to the MacroHive group over at um, Bilal's uh, team. And they, he called it, our momentum models profitable? Now, since we're in the trend-following space, that co- captures uh, our attention a little bit. Uh, and so I'm always curious with these people, right, about um, something that's at least related to what we do. However, you are much better than I am to kind of um, dissect it a little bit for a for a few minutes um, to see what they uh, what they found out and and what some of the arguments were. So perhaps I could ask you, Mark, just to uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, article. Sure. The, the article was
1: uh, associated with something called momentum gap, and the, and and what they sort of said that if you look at the momentum gap, which we'll define in just a second, that that's a good indicator to tell you whether a momentum strategies are going to be successful. Uh, or not. So, so let's go back and, uh, in, in, to give a little bit of context. You know, a trend follower will always look at uh, markets as a sense of a time series. So you look at each individual market separate, you look at the past time series, and then you determine whether you want to see a buyer or seller, okay? Momentum, it takes a very different view. Uh, what they'll do is they'll look at uh, past returns, And usually it may be nine months in the past. And then what they'll do is they'll look at uh, all of the returns in a a set of stocks cross-sectionally. So instead of a time series, we're going to look at any given time. We're going to rank order all of the stocks from the highest momentum to the lowest momentum. We're not really care whether it's positive or negative. We're just going to rank order them. And then what you do is you uh, you say that uh, for a good momentum strategy, And this is no different than the way you look at other factors in the marketplace, is that you'll buy the top of that uh, ranking, and then you'll sell the bottom of the ranking. If you're buying the top of the momentum ranking, then you're saying this is that whatever uh, past returns will then continue into the future, which is, you know, traditional trend following. And and then those at the bottom, that what if that uh, if they were uh, negative, those past negative returns will continue uh, into the future. And then because you're buying the top and selling the bottom, then you're setting up a market neutral portfolio that balances off the two, and you're going to make money based on the the top stocks doing better than the bottom stocks. Okay. Now, what we find out is, is that momentum is a core component of all markets. and If you look at the very, very long run, the momentum risk premium or strategy is very successful over the long run. But it has some very high variation. There'll be periods where it doesn't make money, and then there's other periods where it makes a lot of money. So what this researcher did when he was looking at momentum gap, he said, well, let's look at the... Uh, difference between the highest performing uh, stocks and this and when we sort them versus the lowest perform- performing. that difference we'll call as the gap or the range or the dispersion in returns. And so when you think about it you sort of say well your first view might be well if the dispersion is really great that's good right? and in in some sense i want to buy lar- uh, you know large dispersion or a big momentum gap i think that that's intuitively what people would think and so and what he finds is is just the opposite is that when that momentum gap gets very large that actually future performance will decline okay now it's really important in how you set up a momentum test so usually what when you do momentum trading you'll start at the beginning of the month you'll do the sort and then you'll hold the stocks for the month and then next month you'll resort and do it all over again so he he finds is that this momentum gap or the negative impact of momentum gap if let's say you hold the same portfolio for a longer period of time the negative performance is very strong if you rebalance every month it's still there it may not be as strong so what he's saying is is that this is an anomaly or uh, because he said it it doesn't isn't associated with arbitrage it doesn't seem to be a behavioral story it doesn't fit within let's say a marginal utility story and he says he's sort of scratching his head and said like well i found this anomaly the momentum gap and it's very strong and it's not only exists in the United States, but if you looked at twenty one countries, I think that the number that he found was fifteen. Is is that the, that there's a negative relationship, and the other is that, that it's certainly not positive, you know, on the, in the other direction. So, so what he's saying is that we look at in sample, out of sample, we look at different periods of time. This mom, um, momentum gap exists, and it's strong, and so. So, so he said, like, well, this is this is an important result, and then I started looking at this and sort of said, like, well, the one thing that's missing is is that uh, when I look at this is, well, how do trends behave over time, in general, and how would momentum? So, if we have a large momentum gap, that means that we've already had big performance spread between the best performing and the bottom performing. And if, let's say, on a go-forward basis, you make less money or your returns are lower, well, then it suggests that if there's a big dispersion between you know high performers and low performers, that that won't continue. That in reality is, is that markets are mean reverting at some point. So, so in some senses is that uh, this gets at to the number one issue that we see with all t- Trend following is, is, is that uh, at some point, you know, it's one issue to try to get into a trade, but the real important issue is determining when to get out of a trade. And what this researcher has found is with the momentum gap, is here's a good reason to get out of trades when the dispersion gets very large. So uh, now it's interesting is 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 that uh there's uh, this actually addresses the longer term issue of trend following this is that and I probably say there's always two types of people <laughs> so so uh, you always got to set up straw men of one extreme versus another so there are some trend followers that would sort of say well trends last longer than expected so you should always stay in a trend because you never know how long you last and so, so that would be the one school of thought and and since you don't know when they're going to end, you just got to write them out because you'll always be surprised. And the other school of thought would probably say is, is that, well, I'm I'm sort of a trend pessimist, and a trend pessimist would sort of say, well, you know, I'm going to be a trend, but I know that at some point it's going to reverse because everything everything in the world mean reverts. Whereas uh, Herb Stein, which uh, said that. Uh, something that cannot go on forever won't so so, so you're you're always sort of like uh, paranoid about being your trend follower because you say this is that there's always going to be a time when that market is going to uh, revert because if it didn't then it would take up all of the assets of all of the money all over the world so 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 this so this really sort of talks to the issue of Markets eventually will mean revert. So, what do we do, or what indicators can we have to determine whether markets are stretched? So, uh, some people used the word dispersion. I like the idea of stretch, and that's consistent with this whole idea of thinking about change points. This is that if markets stretch and they're like rubber bands, eventually they're going to have to snap back at some point. Uh, now, if you sort of try to get out of trends early, you will be disappointed by some trades that go on for much longer than expected. And so uh, in some sense, there is this behavioral aspect of, are you comfortable with the fact that you may be leaving money on the table because there may be some trends that will last longer than expected? Or do you want to sort of take some of your profits early? And this is consistent with all of the prospect theory that we've talked about in the past and and which written about us is that generally people like to sort of, uh, you know, sell their winners and hang on to their losers. So uh, now, in some senses, is that there's when we talk about, you know, the utility or the behavior of people who sort of sell their winners and hang on to their losers, we always talk about, well, of course, that's irrational. Yet on some sense, if you believe that mean rever- uh, markets revert, then at some point you want to sort of say you got to take some profits, or you want to think about taking profits. So, but this gets at the heart of the, the issue of uh, prospect theory, behavioral finance, stretch, and the issue of do trends last longer than expected. And so, so I think this was a, uh, a very interesting paper uh it's causing me to sort of think is there another way i could look at or create an indi- indicator within my uh my market set to think about this as an indicator of stretch now the interesting part is that i as someone who looks at markets and have followed trends sort of said oh this seems obvious the researcher sort of said, and, and, and I'm, uh, I may be exaggerating, he was saying, I'm perplexed by this answer, is, is that I'm not sure why this is, would occur. But in reality, it seems, you know, a little bit obvious is that when markets are, are at extremes, then they're probably going to snap back.
0: I mean, I agree. By the way, uh, thanks for that explanation. I agree with you that uh, it's always been my own sort of gut feel that, and, and some people will disagree with the words I, I I choose, where I've said in the past that I thought that the exits were more important in defining how successful you're going to be. And what I meant by that is not to say that the entry isn't important. Of course it is, because if you don't get into the trade, you're not going to make any money, right? Of course, so we know that. But my my gut feel is, and I haven't done you know the research in detail, but my gut feel is that, regardless of what kind of trend-following system you choose to use, if it's more or less set at the same speed, it's going to get you in more or less at the same time, whether it's time series, momentum, breakout, moving average crossover, whatever it might be. So I've always felt that entries were somehow, quote-unquote, easier uh, to come up with. But as you say, what really defines how much of the trend you can capture is your, your exit. Uh, at least that's how I see it. Now, um, I, I have come across, even in our CTA series, there are a manager or two that uses that kind of stretch concept, I believe, um, which I think most trend followers wouldn't really go along with because, to some extent, that's what I would consider a profit target, you know, because it takes profit even as the market continues to move in your favor. I think when I think of exits, I think they are generally some, you know, market trades that are triggered by some kind of move in against against the direction of of your position. So you're not selling into a rally; you are selling because it's peaked and now it's it's going down. Then it's just a question of how sensitive your your uh, exits uh strategy is etc etc but but I, it is interesting uh and and of course there are many ways of of doing things these things there isn't one way or well yeah the
1: the exit is so critical on all this trades because let's give some si- simple examples this is that if i put a trade on you know fairly quickly you're going to know whether it's going to work work or not right uh, and not saying that you always want to use stops but let's say if you had stops this is that it. if it's not working right away you're going to get stopped out and you're you're going to you're going to get nicked we'll sort of say you're going to you're going to give up some profits but uh but that's it and then you go on to the next thing or if let's say that it it you know, prices start to move above you know a moving average and then it sort of reverses back boom you reverse the trade you know you get nicked you're out and so and i don't want to say that's easy but but you're Risk that you take is contained. The problem that you often find, and I guess this is it. You know, I've had internal arguments with people on, on this issue. Is is that let's say I have a trade and uh, put on a trade at corn at, uh, and let's say I put it at six dollars a bushel. Then it goes to six thirty, uh, and then all of a sudden it starts to re- reverse. So, and then you finally get out at six oh five. Okay, and. Some people would thump their chest and said, well, you know I started out at six, I made 605 and therefore it was a very profitable trade. And so look,' I'm a, I'm a really good uh, trader. And then I as being the uh, uh, pessimist and now pessimists are not always gloomy <laughs> uh, uh, but but I would sort of say, well wait a minute, if the price went up to 630, and I got out at six oh five, and I started out at six. Basically, is that I gave back more profits than I actually generated at the end of the trade. This is that that's a lousy trade. This is it. like I can't believe how stupid I was that I did. I didn't get out at around six thirty. This is that I'd be sort of kicking myself and said, you know, there's something wrong with my model because I sort of rode down. Uh, Losses that were much greater than what I actually took as profits. Now, some would say, "Well, Mark, that's just the cost of doing business." You know, the you know, just get over it. Uh, I would probably sort of say that that's why the exit is so important because if somehow I could figure out how to sort of get out, and not you know, I'll assume I can't get out at the uh, peak, but if I could get got out at something better than six oh five, I would add a much better trade. And then you sort of always ask yourself, is is that, well, let's look at the hump. The hump was at 6.30. If, let's say, I got out at 6.25, then the next person did the same trade, but he got out at 6.25, but on the other side of the hump, are those the same trades? Were we both successful or was the first trade, the one that got out before we reached a peak and then redeployed the capital somewhere else. Was that a better trade, or was it the same? To say I went from 625, went to 6 630, and back to 625, and we said, "Oh, okay, well, that's the same trade." Now it took up more time. It used more capital. Uh, you know, I gave back profits. So those are two different trades. And so, so when you think about exit, you'd sort of say, in a perfect world. I'd like to get out before that peak. I'd like to be able to sort of say, then I redeploy that capital in a trade that might be have higher, better returns someplace else, as opposed to riding it past the peak and then and losing money from, from the maximum level.
0: Yes. Now I don't want to get into too much of discussion because actually this is not even one of our topics. This is just <laughs> to the, the paper I'm not so sure. I would say that I agree with when you say well, I would rather get out before the peak because I still think that the, the strength of what we do is the fact that we don't know where the peak is going to be. So let's just let's just run with it. So I, I, I so I'm not quite in that camp. I have to say. Let's move on to um, the topic that you mentioned at the very beginning, and I think this is a topic that you know we could have we could have said exactly the same thing last year when uh, when the war in Ukraine broke out. I think there are a lot of people that expected certain things to pan out; they didn't. And so when you wrote to me and said, "Well, why don't we talk about all the things that you know did not happen uh, this year?" I thought, "Yeah, why not? Let's uh, let's let's dive in." So. Tell us tell us more mark
1: well we will hit the uh, end of uh, the month before your next call so this is a good time to start to do a recap but eventually what we're going to do is we're going to end up with something about how this applies to trading but at the end of the day as i said yes this is a recurring theme of forecasters who sort of say i've made a forecast here's what i thought and and you you go back over the forecast and you find out it's not close to what was reality. So, so let's, let's look about what didn't happen, how that impinged trend following and CTAs in general and, and and trading, and then why you know the forecaster is different than the trend followers. So 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 let's do the big s- setup. This is that recession. Where were we expecting a recession? Now they're saying it might be 2024 or not ever going to happen. We had, so far this half year, a banking crisis. We thought that the banking system was going to come to an end, and this was going to be the big opportunity for a big dislocation. You know, that didn't pan out. Uh, inflation, and I'll sort of say that uh, we're, we're stuck at around the 4% core. Uh, now it's looking as though that the things that, uh, you, know, f- you know, central banks have said, well, if we ever get above our target, we could easily just uh, we we could change a knob and get it back down to target. Now we're looking at targets that might t- might take us two years to get there. So, uh, you know what happened there? Uh, China recovery. We thought that once the COVID restrictions were lifted in China, this is that uh, that this would be the engine of global growth. That's not happening. Uh, we now have a Fed pause, uh, which, you know, but we're still sort of baked in about two 25 basis point changes. We're, the world was coming to end with a debt ceiling crisis. And then lo and behold, it was almost as though that uh, it became a, uh, as say some people would say, a nothing burger, in a sense, nothing nothing happened. And so, so you look at what are the trend followers looking for? What would you know? Divergent traders look for. They're looking for dislocations, and yet if we look back for 2023, we haven't had the dislocations. And so now we sort of look at what the market is. Is it volatility? We we sort of say October of last year we had a volatility of around 30 plus for the VIX. Now we're at about 13. When you think about it, is is that you know, a volatility of 13. Uh, now, I'm really surprised at that because everyone would have thought that even at higher vol- uh, inflation, higher inflation would just cause more uncertainty and that would just kept volatility for stocks higher. Nope, that's not the case. We're probably at the lower end of the of the VIX range, even though it is sort of a, you know, highly skewed. We've got. Double-digit returns for the stock market, albeit highly concentrated, so that is still a, still a surprise. We've got the dollar is probably down ten percent from the peak, but given that we've paused and given other central banks are also you know raising rates, that's not that surprising. But you know, we'll say 2022 was sort of an aberration, and then you look at commodity markets. Is is that oil prices have been highly volatile, but they're somewhat range bound. And if you look at overall as a lot of commodity markets, they're somewhat range bound. So given all of the potential crisis they have, we've actually sort of see we've had less trends, less returns, less dispersion, so that you know there have been uh, less divergences convergent is just, I can't really say we're a convergent environment but what we'll sort of say that for a trading perspective is is that uh, if you say the traditional CTAs are more uh, beta timing managers they're looking at overall markets and trying to time the beta we haven't had a, a big beta timing environment. And those people who, you know, we sort of look at also idiosyncratic risk for stocks and looking at a very short-term horizon, it's probably been more of an idiosyncratic market, is that you look at the combination of stocks within the S&P 500, you probably, in a short run, there's probably better opportunities. And it's not so much that they're better, but they at least exist where the, beta timing or large macro CTA hasn't been finding opportunities. So so where are we going? This? this is that what you find out is this, now that there's two types of uh, people again. Uh, we've got the forecast guys. And the forecast guy would say, I have an idea and oftentimes my risk is getting in uh, early or their problem is always being early. So I've got to get the... Uh, the, I got to forecast the phenomena, and then I've got And then their risk is always on the timing of getting in early, whereas, you know, Jim Grant said, "The inevitable may be certain, but it is not punctual." So, 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 so that's the problem. With, with we may still have a recession. It's just that the timing of whether it's going to be punctual or not is the is the problem. Uh, we may have another banking crisis. It may be inevitable, given all this. So we may have a real estate crisis. It may be inevitable, but the timing is the problem. Now, someone who's a trend follower is uh, just the opposite. So he doesn't ask what will happen, or he doesn't try to think about what are the potential events that might occur that might lead to changes in the markets. You just say, it's just a given. Uh, I don't know or I can't forecast those events. I'm just going to assume that it's going to happen. And if anything, their biggest problem is is that they might be late as opposed to early. So the forecaster is always saying, I got to get, get in early. And then they usually lose money because they're ahead of the crowd. They're smarter than everybody else. And the market is usually, uh, I don't want to say that the market is dumb, but the market is usually slower to react to some events. The trend follower, on the other hand, says, I can't tell you what will happen. I'm not going to tell you uh, when it's going to happen. And I'm probably going to be late to the party. So so my biggest problem is, 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 that is, is, the, is the event, has it already taken place? Am I too late? So when you think about it, is there are very different approaches to how to think about it. And now, while we say that they're very different, there's not, they're not mere images of each other. So the forecaster could be wrong, but if the forecaster is wrong, that doesn't mean that the trend follower will make money, but it's a different way in which you look at the, at the environment.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a lot of things that ties together with that. So we talked a little bit about the um, well. You also have something called the mind the gap, momentum gap. Um, well, well
1: that's the uh, <laughs> going back to our moment. Uh, you know, our momentum gap is is that I always think about when I'm you know in London and you're in the in the tube, and they, they say say mind the gap. So 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 you always have to say let's make sure that we mind uh, mind the, the gaps because that'll make a big difference in on what your performance might be.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, good. Then we kind of jump a little bit into um, ML, AI, maybe in terms of uh, topic, uh, something that you uh, talked about, and in a sense also related to the fact that we live in a a time of of uncertainty, which to some extent I guess we always do. So uh, how how do we how do you how do you see this challenge?
1: Well. This has been a very interesting challenge because it used to be that you the challenge was okay. What's the data I use, and then you know I try to apply my models to to a given set of datas, and you try to train it, or you look at different periods, and then you make some adjustments and try to look at different features to 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 what you're uh, trying to do. But but the ML re- revolution is really sort of. Uh, increase the choices that a modeler has and so now it isn't a matter of say okay how, what rules do i use or what data set do i apply to or what's my portfolio construction but it's also the choice of what are the tools i'm going to use to try to extract signals from so in a in a very simple world we'll say in the early days this is that uh and this applies to any systematic model this is that it. it was very digital so so trading was uh, or signals were an on off switch so let's take the simple example if price is above a moving average i'm going to be long if price is below the moving average i'm going to be short it was there's was very little you know sort of I don't want to say flexibility, but it, uh, it's but very it was very binary, right? Yeah, it's binary, and that's what we say when it's digital. It's hey, it's a switch. We turn the switch on. We turn the switch off. Okay, and uh, and if uh, you might have used you know linear regression, you know as as a tool, uh, and that might again help you on to have these you know binary switches. You you switch on and switch off. Okay. But now it's what happens is that we're well beyond regression. So we have all of these different techniques that apply. And so now, say, all of them are trying to do the same thing, extract signals. But now the value added for any systematic manager is the type of technique or what technique you have. And now your choices of techniques are much larger. Okay, so uh, it's not a matter of how you constr- uh well it's always a matter of how you construct a portfolio and data you use and markets you trade. But now the uh, one of the key uh, determinations of saying what's the difference between one systematic manager and another is the techniques that they use. So, uh, and those could be uh, you know neural nets, random forest, gradient boosted. So the the list is endless in how you sort of look at it. Now, I think this is all an improvement, but what it does is is it puts a whole different burden on researchers and different burden on the quantitative analysts, because now it's sort of say that it used to be you had one tool or your toolbox was very limited Now we have a much bigger toolbox, more tools. We have to decide what is the right tool for the right problem and how do we sort of choose that tool to answer the specific problem? And that's not always easy.
0: In some ways, you could argue, well, having more tools is better. It gives me more choice to solve the problem. But you could also ask, well, sometimes having more tools makes it harder to choose which tool to to use. So all these possibilities, and and, and Alan and I touched on this last week a little bit about AI and and, uh, implications for our industry. I'm not sure how I feel about it myself. I don't know if it's going to make a huge difference to long-term trend following, maybe short-term trading, perhaps. I have not personally heard of any one particular that... Except for maybe uh, one of the managers we talked about uh, or talked to in our CTA series that uh, said, yeah they, they lose, use machine learning, but they do it under very strict supervision, right? So I don't know. I was just curious, Mark, you've also seen many different uh, iterations of of uh, systems building. Um, how, how do you, how do you feel about it? Well, are you excited?
1: I'm, I'm excited about it but then it also sort of puts a lot of work and burden on me because now I've got to figure out what all these tools are so every time a new tool comes out or a new uh, you know process you have you want to say and someone says well this is uh, uh, this new process is, is is great and what usually what you'll do is you'll read a paper or there'll be someone who writes about it and they'll say I took this data set I ran this uh, with this new tool, and look, I've got these good results. And so now right away, your answer is, okay, I better figure out what this tool is. So now you got to spend the energy to say, what is the tool? Then you have to uh, unpack and say, well, if I use this tool, am I going to get a better answer than if I use a simpler tool? Is this marginally improvement, and what is the marginal improvement that I'm actually getting, and does it lead to more trading or not, and, and so which means it could cost more, and and my general view has always been is this is that uh, we use the tools we want like we use a car; it's a mode of transportation to get from point A to point B. This is, is that, and if I have a more sophisticated tool or car. Well, there's more likelihood that something might break, and if something might break, then there's a potential point point of uh, failure. So, uh, so the example is is that I remember the old uh, Volkswagen Bug, where you had the engine in the back. This is that you know, if something went wrong, you could put, you get a little stool, you open up the back of the car, you probably could figure it out yourself if you're mechanically inclined to degree. So now. I could have a Ferrari, <laughs> and, and uh, but there's no way that if let's say something breaks, then I'm going to be able, and I'm on the side of the road, I'm going to have to call for a tow truck and I probably can have a, a, a different response. So, and we'll sort of say we've had this problem in, a, in our firm and it's not a problem. We use machine learning. Uh, we think that it adds value, especially if we're looking at uh, uh, a lot of features in a very broad stock index. So if I'm trying to look at trying to tease out fundamental data, macro data, and technical data, and I'm looking at, let's say, the Russell uh, 1000 or the S&P 500, and I want to look at 500 stocks, and I want to look over a long period of time, using machine learning could be very, very helpful. Okay, On the macro side, for I'm looking at you know intermediate to longer term type of trades, then there might be only marginal improvement, and it may not be as much improvement. So, so it's also a matter of using the right technique at the right time. So, we did have to, an interesting issue is that we used some of the more complex features. So, we we're using some uh, analysis within. We we're using some random forest, and. Uh, then at the end of the day we came back and said well let's look at actually more simpler techniques and those would actually be better and so uh so i think that all these new techniques what are they trying to do is this is that uh they're trying to tease out nonlinearities inside markets because markets are non-linear and this is, this is that uh if we wanted to be some more simplistics is that there's there's always going to be breakouts in markets, that they're going to be in a range, and all of a sudden they break out. That's a nonlinear system, right? So so if you try to use linear regression in a nonlinear system, you're going to have a problem. And so using these new techniques, it tries to try to get at the nonlinearity. And the other thing it tries to do is, is, is that is to try to make some of the decision-making you do from trading to move it from a digital signal to an analog de- uh, decision. So when we talked about it initially, is that the digital decision is binaries, yes or no. So an analog would sort of say like, well, it's more of a continuing, uh, continual process. So in that site, we want to think of in terms of probabilities. So And if you think about this also within change points, the probabilities make a lot of sense. so when I look at price above a moving average, we want to sort of say, what's the probability that that will continue? And it may be that as that price above moving average gets to a certain extreme, that then the probability that the next step will be higher may actually be lower. So from an analog perspective, I say the probabilities that this trade will continue to be positive is lower, so therefore I might take it, take it off at this time. In a digital world, if you sort of say, well, if long longest price is above the moving average, I just have to hold. In an analog world, you could sort of think in terms more of more probabilities, and you could then, then be able to sort of, sort of say get more nuanced in how you trade. And, and that
0: might be helpful from a machine learning perspective. I mean it certainly will be very interesting to follow this evolution that we're going through right now and certainly is happening quite fast I take a lot of comfort in the fact that trend following as a strategy has been around so long that we've seen many of these quote unquote revolutions you know the introduction of the internet uh and and the whole tech revolution and so on and so forth and 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 I think it's the underlying methodology that that I firmly believe in and the robustness of the approach and the fact that it's based on human behavior. Whether or not we can improve using AI, I don't know. Time will tell. So uh, it'll be exciting uh, without a doubt. Now, Mark, uh, just in the interest of time, we have another 15 minutes or so. Um, so I'll kind of let you choose of the remaining topics that you mentioned or brought along that you wanted to talk about. Which ones you feel well might fit our conversation today? The
1: the, the issue that I think that's probably most relevant for a, lo- a lot of listeners is, is this issue of failure of models. And uh, the reason why I bring this up is you know, obviously this has been building some new models and we always want to sort of see, well, what's the performance in sample and out of sample? And then there was some interesting research papers that talked about the failure of finance and the fact that, uh, that models fail. And then what you find is that you test a model in sample and then all of a sudden, out of sample, it doesn't work as well. Or a uh, so that's one problem. Another problem is is that someone writes a research paper and it shows that they've found some you know risk premium anomaly. And then as soon as it gets published, then the the, the anomaly goes away. So uh, which might be is ar- arbitraged away. But what you find out is is that what you find in the lab doesn't match what f- happens in reality. And so. So an interesting uh, st- study uh, where a group of researchers they looked at uh, all of these a lot of these risk premium models and then they said let's all train the models and then let's look at what happens out of sample and find out how much you know decline in sharp ratio occurs and and the rule of thumb is probably about thirty to forty percent you know in degradation out out of s- sample and I probably would sort of say when I was on the uh, Investment side, you know, and someone showed me a new model. This is that the rule of thumb would might be say, like, well, let's discount some back testing by, you know, 50%. And so that may not be a right number, but, you know, it's sort of like a rule of thumb that a lot of people have used. And so, so, so I think that overall, this is to say that the number one challenge for researchers is trying to figure out how to make sure that we minimize you know, uh, model failure so that we could sort of say that the difference between in-sample versus out-of-sample performance is actually matches up as closely as possible. And it's especially the case if you're a new manager. And so I've probably been spending a lot of time to think about uh, uh, two areas. One is uh, market frictions, which we'll define in just a second, and then one of my favorite terms that you know that I've used before so is, is VUCA. Okay, <laughs> it's, uh, it's back? Uh, VUCA is back. So, but, but I love it because it's, it's used as a framework. But, but the first is market frictions is, is that when you build a model, this is that did you account properly for transactions costs? Okay, so uh, models perform uh, really good in sample, but did you also include all the transactions costs or liquidity costs? And so, so if I, if I want to know whether a model is going to fail or how much of a discount I should give, this is that I go right to the transaction costs or liquidity. So, can I be able to trade these things? Can I be able to good uh, transaction cost assumptions? And that's why is that if you're a modeler is is that you should. If you start trading, you want to look at your model and run it parallel against actual trading and then sort of say, OK, how much slippage between theory and, and actuality occurs? And if that slippage is too great, uh, then what am I missing from my model so I could sort of you know close that gap? It's well known, and it's, uh, it's, it's probably everybody knows this is the case. But I think for anybody who's probably listening, this is that this transaction liquidity issue or the frictions issue is something that you got to constantly look at, and then because you know if you don't, then then you're going to be surprised. And so the other is 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 that when I look at the VUCA issue, is is that you look at uh, well, uh, let's look at this in the terms of model building. This is that one is this is that when you think of. Uh, you know, volatility, okay? Uh, did you train it in one period and has there been a, reg- a regime change? Okay, so so you have to ask yourself, is, is that if you train in low volatility and we have high volatility, you're going to have a problem. So, you know, so how does, so you want to make sure your training set includes enough phenomena so that then you're, uh, you're going to be able to handle different regimes. Then you want to sort of say, uh, you, you sort of say in terms of complexity, say, well, let's look at overfitting. So you want to try to keep models as simple as possible. So, so you're constantly looking at uh, complexity may be good, but then as you add more and more complexity, you might be sort of maximizing your returns for a given t- trading period. So then you want to look at. Uh, uh, the training in, in different periods to just sort of say, do I have a long enough period or sample size for anything I do? And I know we are discussing a little bit. And we and this is probably a longer term uh, topic, but you know, if you have a longer term trend following model, you're going to need a longer trend period because you're just going to have less trades. This is it. If I have a very uh, short term uh, m- model well then, I'm probably going to have a lot more trades for any sample period. Of course, then you have the other problem is, is that I have more trades for the sample period, but then did I, uh, is it regime-specific? So, so you have a trade-off is that is uh, I'll get more regimes for my longer-term horizon. And that's what you want to have, but at the same time, is is that if you have a longer-term system, you're going to have less trades. So, so your sample is going to be uh, is is has to be all the longer. And then finally, is you know, parameter uncertainty is 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 that you know how do you deal with the fact that you know you chose a set of parameters for your model, and then as you move forward, you don't know whether that's the actual you know best set of parameters and so there's ambiguity about whether what you picked is the right uh, right no- number so i probably would sort of say that uh, the failure of models problem is the biggest challenge for any quantitative analyst more so than when you're sort of saying okay did i uh, did i pick the right entry or exit is is it so let's say we have two models and one has a sharp ratio in sample of two during the training period. I look outside sample, and then it has a performance of a sharp of one. Okay. I have a second model that might sort of have a sharp ratio of around, you know, one and a quarter, one ten, and then out of sample, it's it's around one, you know, slightly under. Okay. Which one would you prefer? So, one person might say, say, Well, I always want to choose the high sharp ratio, and we'll just sort of say that the uh, out of sample return is just bad luck. Okay? But it's not immediately obvious. This is, is that if, if I have sort of like a, a lower sharp ratio model, but the performance is very stable out of sample. You might sort of say that's a better model than if it was a high sharp ratio, but then, it is, out of sample, is is it, its performance is, has been cut in half. So, now, it always reminds me of a story of walking in Manhattan, and as I, I was going from one allocator to another, and so, first allocator I go to, he says, "This is that uh, if you don't have a sharp ratio or two or better, you know, I'm not even going to talk to you. Just." get out of my office. this is said, I'm only looking at high sharp ratio strategies. So I said, And then we walked down to the next allocator. He said, if you're showing me a sharp ratio above two, I'm going to kick you out of my office because I don't believe it can do this. It's going to mean revert. And and so as soon as I invest, it's going to be much lower than what you say it is. So I would never invest in a sharp ratio above two. It, isn't, it doesn't deal with the failure of models. What it does suggest is that there are many ways to interpret what is a good or bad model. But at the very least, you want to make sure that your uh, training performance is, is similar to your actual performance.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, this is so critical and it's probably one of the hardest things we do. Um, and also identifying uh, when perhaps a model is not doing what it's supposed to do Uh, so I have a a lot of respect for those people working in research and dealing with these type of uh, challenges I actually also have a lot of uh, sympathy for allocators having to uh, make an outside call essentially because there are certain things we as managers can't share uh, on, on these things and then going through drawdowns and having to decide whether this is just part of the path or whether it's something um, more, you know, um, a sign of something not working, uh, especially when you're outside, uh, must be incredibly difficult. And I think that's where the, that's where communication from managers uh, are are super, super important. And and, and frankly, I mean, it's all, I mean, it it really is, it, it really comes down to something quite basic to some extent, and that is we as managers sometimes really need to hold our investors' hand through periods where we are pretty convinced that this is part of part and parcel of how the strategy operates. And of course, sometimes these things happen, I wouldn't say at times where other managers are not necessarily going through a difficult time because there is a, obviously a certain level of correlation. But sometimes we will look different. I mean, one of the questions we always get from uh, potential investors is, how are you different? And of course, we don't know exactly what other people are doing. So we have to explain how we think we're different. And then people might make a choice based on, oh yeah, I like something like this because it's different. But then when you are different during a time uh, and maybe you're underperforming and other managers are performing really well, then people suddenly don't really like that difference, even though it's the difference that originally attracted them to your strategy. And we're dealing with human beings, right, where things are not static uh, in terms of how we view things. This, Yeah. So, it, it, this is fascinating stuff. Right. And, and
1: it also applies to ex- existing managers. So, you know, I'm talking about the problem for, you know, you have a model and you're sort of showing a model and then it's is in-sample versus out-of-sample training versus uh, actual performance. So, and and I'm sure you know you've seen, seen this is that you know you could be a, a long term manager, and yet you'll have periods where you're going to be doing well, and then there's going to be periods that you're not going to do as well. And and then you know you're you, if you're an investor, you constantly have to ask: Is the future performance going to be like the May? If maybe they are going through a drawdown or have poor performance in the last couple of years, is that? do I expect that the last couple of years is going to be representative of the next few years? Or if I look at the longer-term track record, they might have a much higher SHARP ratio and say, well, yes, this is a little bit of an anomaly, and I'm going to go on the long-term record. So, uh, so this is not just between training and out of sample. This is for anything we, we do. And I think there is also you can't discount the fact that uh, there's such a thing as uh, good luck and bad luck so if I run a simulation and I, or I bootstrap this is that I'm taking one path and so so I could have the same model but I could have alternative realities of different paths of return and you know I assure you that when I look at those different paths is that I always pick the good path <laughs> but but uh we don't know that that is actually going to occur and there's a there's a there's almost a cloud of where your performance might end up and there is good and bad luck with yeah. with with models.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we're coming up to the hour uh level. Anything you wanted to round off with any particular uh of the last uh, few points that you think we definitely need to just uh, touch on before we wrap up? Uh, Mark? Well,
1: you know, I think that uh, as we, we sort of look at this half year mark and we go into the new year's, this is that, uh, and this is consistent of sort of my idea of macro awareness. And it doesn't mean that I'm a forecaster, but I sort of say you want to be environmentally aware is this is that we've had surprisingly low macro uncertainty that has led to low market volatility. But if you look at the second half of the year, if I was, uh, you know, if you sort of bet on the distribution of the VIX, you bet on the uh, distribution of what is the macro uncertainty. I sort of say is that the expectation is this is that uh, the second half of the year is not going to be like the first half. But my, my 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 bet would be is that we're probably going to have more volatility. So and. Uh, we might even find out on Monday after the things in Russia but, but there's there's no question is, is, is that uh, that we had a surprise we had a surprise to the downside on lack of macro uncertainty, a lack of, of market volatility. Is, is that so surprise and a downside not that we're going mean reverting guys well, we sort of. but it's more likely that we're you know we're going to be on the upside and we're going to have more dispersion and uh,
0: volatility in the second half of a year. Yeah, no, I think this is actually one of the things that I find fascinating at the moment, and that is when you look at the geopolitical, you know, perspective of what's going on in the world, and if you uh, also look at the kind of the macroeconomics, how how you know what's going on and the massive changes we've had in interest rates, the massive changes we've had in inflation, it really is kind of surprising. And then you look at a VIX that during the week i don't know if it closed below 13 or it was certainly during the week below 13 and you think wow that is a low level of uncertainty priced into uh, those markets it is surprising and i think this is again why i think uh what we do in in our world is 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 pretty um it's pretty robust because often when people make these calls about oh yeah we're going to have this and this environment over the next 6 months and 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 often it just doesn't pan out and i think even i've been surprised how complacent some of these markets uh, are behaving uh, given all the uncertainty that that i think we have beneath somewhere beneath the surface
1: so it's interesting that uh Everyone will agree that the stock market is a predictive market, so, so it's forward-looking. Okay, but because you're forward-looking, doesn't mean that you get your your forward-looking forecast correct. So, and the thing that always sticks in my mind there is a very interesting study by Niall Ferguson, the uh, the historian. So he looked at the stock market you know, prior to the beginning of World War One, and this is so after the sh- sh- uh, shooting after um you know armies started to mobilize but there really wor- weren't hostilities so he said like well let's look at the volatility of stock market. let's look at what's happening in the stock market did the stock market predict you know these geopolitical unrest and the answer was no that it was really surprised by world war one that doesn't mean it'll apply in everything but but here's a, that there can be large events that occur and markets could still be complacent even though they're predictive and and forward-looking and so that's the thing that always should scare you
0: yeah all right well we don't want to scare anyone really much uh today <laughs> today but i appreciate all of these uh common thoughts insights you know as as people uh will know who's been listening for a while um, you know, we try to touch on different um, angles of these things, um, you know, we, we, uh, uh, and, and we're not really necessarily always saying, you know, what people should do. We just want people to think about some of these topics and, and make up their own mind. Of course, we have our own biases, we have our own beliefs, but it's, it's, um, it's, for me, it's very important to have this as an ongoing conversation about topics that I think are important but at the end of the day, it's about finding something that you, as an investor, can really believe in. Because if you if you don't believe in whatever strategy you end up with, um, it's going to be very hard to stick with it f- for the long term. And I think uh, most investors will say, or at least most successful investors will say that it truly is something that you need to apply for for the long term um, in order to be achieve your goals, um, whatever they may be. Um, So, we'll keep doing this, Mark. Bring up topics for people to think about. And so I really do appreciate uh, all of this uh, today. And of course, as always, in order to broaden our our listenership, we would love if you would give us a little bit of help um, by going to your favorite podcast platform, leave a rating and review. Um, It really does help um, our podcast reach a bigger audience. Uh, Of course, always happy if you would share the episodes with your friends and colleagues. Um, Next week, uh, we're going back to the world of, (laughs) speaking of complacency, we're going back to the world of volatility because Jim will be back on the um, Systematic Investor Series. So we'll see what his thoughts are. Uh, He had some strong opinions uh, last time he was on about what the markets were going to do and actually was pretty right that they they may surprise to the upside before and it was before the markets were going to have some weakness in them. Let's see uh, where he is on his thoughts on that. And if you have a question for Jim you can email it to info at toptradersonplot.com I'll do my best to bring it uh, in front of him uh, next weekend. Actually you should send it before because I think we're recording on a Friday. Anyways Um, You can, of course, also go and check out all the blog posts we're posting uh, on a weekly basis, bi-weekly basis, actually. There's a new monthly trend-following update um, that Rich and I put out uh, this week. So hopefully lots of things for you to do this weekend. From Mark and me, thanks ever so much for uh, listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, as usual, I hope you will take care of yourself and take care of each other.